Well, we are at the midpoint or the halfway mark of both the book of Leviticus and our study of it. And what I thought would we would do tonight, and I think it's important for us for a few reasons, but I thought we would go back and reset the context of the book as we start. Um, it, it helped us as we began, and I think it will really help us as, as we look at the Day of Atonement. Uh, if you'll remember, as we began, the first word of the book is the word and. That means that uh, what is to follow is a continuation, not only of the narrative of Exodus, but all the way back to creation. You'll remember that God created the world and everything in it, including man. And he tightened his focus to a place called Eden. And he put a garden there. And he placed man in it, not only to live, but the garden was a place where man would dwell with God. God would dwell among his people. His people would dwell with him. And that dwelling with involves, that fellowship involves uh, engaging with. Or fellowship is the best word, but that engagement between God and man. And God, of course, laid out rules and expectations that he would have of those who dwelled there. And the key one being not to eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil. And God said if he ate it, he would surely die. The language in Genesis is that he would surely die, die for emphasis. God then created woman, gave her to man, and then they had the opportunity at that point to live and dwell with God forever. He would dwell with each other, dwell with him, living together in the, in the presence of God. And unfortunately, you know what happens. The two questioned or doubted God's word. They believed Satan's suggestion that despite all that God had given them, that he was withholding something from them. God had specifically said that they do what God specifically said they shouldn't do. And when they ate of the fruit, they knew it immediately. There wasn't any hesitation. They knew the mistake that they had made. And after their own attempts to hide themselves, God graciously called out to them. Graciously asked where they were, knowing where they were, but he graciously reaches out to them. He graciously questions them and he graciously pronounces the plan that he is going to bring about to remedy the problem that they had created. He was going to provide a seed through the woman that was going to solve their issue and ours. But the damage had been done, the consequences were to be experienced, they could no longer dwell with God, and a chasm had been created, too big of a chasm for them to uh, bridge themselves. As we've already heard from John tonight, that they, God was holy, they were not, and they could not dwell together any longer. The separation was too great, so God clothed Adam and Eve cast them out of the garden, and then placed two cherubim at the gate. Again, an act of grace to guard that tree of life so that they did not enter back in in their state of sin and eat of the tree of life and be in that position forever. So the gate has been guarded. And they, the, the rest of the narrative takes them further and further east very important for us to remember as we walk through tonight, but further and further east from the garden 
And in the midst of that progression away that included the flood and the Tower of Babel, God reaches out to Abraham and makes a covenant with him. He promises that the seed that he had promised Eve would come through his line. The same seed that he promised Abraham, he had promised Eve. And and through Abraham and through his son Isaac and through Isaac's son Jacob, the promised people became a nation. And unfortunately, that nation went into captivity in Egypt. But God's abiding presence hadn't been absent or had been, though his abiding presence had been absent, he still remained with his people. And in Exodus 6, we read that through Moses, God announced that he was going to deliver them and he was going to be their God and they were going to be his people. A promise that he would forever keep. And so then he leads them to Mount Sinai. And, and it is a place where Moses is able at that point to ascend into the presence of God. And it's there that God gives Moses the rules and expectations that his people would need to dwell with him. Now that they were redeemed, this is how they were to live. They, they were a redeemed people. They were now going to live in this way as a redeemed people. And, and that brought us to Exodus 25. In Exodus 25, God instructed Moses to tell the people that they were to build a tabernacle or a tent of meeting. And, and those two words are interchangeable, but one means he's going to dwell with them. Another is that they're going to meet with him. They're going to dwell with and meet with God. In other words, it's, it's a, a place where the divine and the human Meet together. And you'll remember I quoted from, from Dr. Morales. He said this, the tabernacle has a twofold theological meaning. It is first the dwelling of God, Yahweh's home. And secondly, the tabernacle is also the way to God's house. That is the way to God himself to engage with in fellowship. Stated differently, the tabernacle is not only God's house, the place of his presence, but it is the ordained way of approaching the divine presence. And we're going to see that tonight. So God was now going to do something that he hadn't done since the flood. He was going to dwell among his people. So the, the tabernacle, in essence, became a portable Mount Sinai that pointed back to Eden. But in Exodus forty thirty four. It says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses would not, was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So we immediately have a dilemma. We have a dilemma because while God was now present and dwelling with his people, there wasn't anybody that could enter, actually enter in to the tent of meeting. Remember, they must remain completely, the holy and the unholy must remain completely separate And so the people are thinking, well, wait a minute, you're now here, you're dwelling among us. Moses has been the only one that's been able to ascend to Mount Sinai. And now he can't even enter into the tabernacle or the tabernacle. Who can do it? Who can ascend or who can enter? How is this going to work? And so we've been looking over the last 15 chapters of how that was possible And we're going to see once again tonight that the answer to their question is going to be answered fully right here tonight. But the answer to their question is the only one 
who is able to approach the Lord or to ascend into God's presence or in to enter into his dwelling is a God appointed mediator. Who enters in through God ordained means. A God ordained mediator who enters in through God appointed means. God ordained means. Which in the words of Dr. Morales is the doorway of atonement. So tonight we're going to look at the, the, the title tonight is Approaching the Lord. Approaching the Lord. And there are three points. You'll find these in the back of your bulletin. And the first is the wrong way of approach. The second is the right way of approach. And the third is the final and perfect way of approach. The wrong approach, the right approach, and the full, final, and perfect way of approach. And before we begin, Grant, Grant did a fabulous job. I'm not going to reread. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, would you, by your spirit, we pray that you would allow us to appreciate the richness of your story of redemption, of which you have graciously made us a part. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these words from Leviticus. Would you help us to understand them? May we leave here appreciating more fully what is presently and forever ours in Christ. And therefore more confident in, resting more fully in, and trusting more deeply in Him and what He has done for us and gifted to us. And I pray these things in Him who is our full and final way of approach. Amen. So if you look at your Bible, Leviticus 16, you'll notice the very first verse, the text as a whole begins this way. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. What a way to start 16, right? Well, if you remember from chapter 10 that Aaron, uh, Aaron preached through 8, 9, and 10, he had that daunting task of 8, 9, and 10. But in chapter 10, you'll remember that Nadab and Abihu had taken their censers and had put what was unauthorized or strange fire within it and went before the Lord. And no one's really sure what strange exactly means. So the best word is unauthorized because it was something that the Lord had not commanded. The Lord had not commanded to do whatever it is they were doing and they paid the price. The result was death. Immediately a consuming fire fell upon the two and they died. And it's interesting in chapter 9 that Aaron brought for us a couple of weeks ago, after the consuming fire fell upon the altar, we noticed that all the people shouted and fell on their faces in worship. It's not the same this time. The fire falls and kills Nadab and Abihu. And what happens? It says Aaron held his peace. Why would Aaron hold his peace? Or why would he keep quiet? Well, as one commentator put it, the closer a man is to God, the more attention he must pay to holiness and the glory of God. The unspoken implication is that the sons of the high priest ought to have known better than to act so presumptuously. So there really wasn't anything for Aaron to say. Though he felt it, though he may have wanted to as the father, there wasn't anything left for him to say. The Lord had determined the way of approach. The Lord had decided what that way of approach would be, and it must be followed. And Nadab and Abihu decided to do things their own way. They decided to go into the Lord's presence as they determined, not as the Lord had determined. And they approached him in the wrong way. 
And as a result, they contaminated the tabernacle because of their sin of disobedience. But they also contaminated the tabernacle with their dead bodies. As we read back earlier in our chapters of clean and unclean, right? Now, many of us have trouble with an event like this, don't we? We struggle with the matter of factness in the way that God acted. And I think we have trouble, trouble with it sometimes because, and it seems to be an extreme consequence, but I think we have trouble with it today for two reasons. One is, again, back to what John said prior to the confession of faith, God's holiness has been downgraded and the severity of our sin has been downplayed. So those two things are working at once. And so truthfully, how we feel about it is irrelevant. How we feel about God's actions is irrelevant because the reality is, if you remember from our study, God is transcendent, magnificent, He is holy, He's perfectly righteous, He's perfectly good, He is altogether other. And we know sin, as defined by the larger catechism in question 24, is any want or conformity unto or transgression against the law. And that sin stains, it defiles, it contaminates, it pollutes, it creates guilt and shame. It separates us from God and it ultimately leads to death. And so the fire that consumed Nadab and Abihu was fire of judgment. And that judgment wasn't the first, nor would it be the last time it would be experienced due to the folly of sin. And I use the word folly for a reason. The definition of folly is the lack of good sense, criminally or tragically foolish, evil or wicked, excessively costly or unprofitable. Sin is folly and it separates us from God. So how can we approach him? How can we dwell with him? And, and that's what the rest of chapter 16 is about. From chapter or from verse two through the end, the Lord graciously provides a way of approach. And many have trouble with him providing the way of approach because there's one way of approach. And rather than worry about one way of approach, we ought to be happy that there's a way at all. So even in this approach, God is gracious. In the midst of the law, God shows how gracious he is. And he wants Aaron, he describes to Aaron how through Moses, and he wants the people also to know that there is a specific time in a specific way that he is to be approached. And for us, that time coincides with October 10th. It just happened last month. It's the Day of Atonement or on your calendars, if you, if, whether you're in paper or in the phone, it was Yom Kippur. And on that day, every year, Aaron and the great high priests after him were to humble themselves, take off their ornate robes and, and bathe and then put on very simple white linen, uh, including a turban. And once they were, once he and, and the great high priest after were, were dressed, they would take an unblemished bull and they would kill it and they would drain the blood. And they would, then they would fill a, uh, a censer and they would take coals off of the uh, burnt offering, the altar of burnt offering and, and place it in the censer. And then they would take incense and place it upon that censer. And then they would walk in and, and walk through the veil 
And then they would walk from the veil of the tent of meeting into the tent of the Holy of Holies, walking through both veils into the Holy of Holies. And and the smoke that would come off of that censer would fill that small room, creating a cloud so that the priest could not see the Lord whose presence would be above the mercy seat. And verse 13 says very specifically that the reason it was there was for the, pur- the purpose of the cloud over the mercy seat was to keep the priest alive. It was to keep the priest alive for it was there that the presence of the Lord would appear and he was not to be seen due to his glory and his holiness, which was too much for sinful man to bear. And once the cloud filled the room, he would take his finger in the blood that he also had brought with him. He would put it in the, in the blood and then he would put it upon the mercy seat, which, which some would say was on top of the lid or may have acted as the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And he would spread that out and then he would put his finger in again. And then he would, on the, on the east side, pardon me, he would put it on the east side of that uh, mercy seat. And then he would take his finger and then he would s- sprinkle it seven times in front. He would then leave the tent of meeting and he would go and have two goats brought to him. And then he would take two uh, lots or stones and he would mark them, one for each goat. He would put them in a sack, shake them up, and then draw one out. And that first one was to be to the Lord, which meant that the second one would be to Azazel. We don't really know who Azazel is or what it was, but that second goat served as what was called a scapegoat. And so the Lord would... Uh, the, the priest would then take that goat that had been set aside for the Lord and he would sacrifice it and he would do the same thing, the same process. He would go into the tent of meeting and then into the Holy of Holies. The smoke would fill the room and then he would do the same thing, the spreading the blood of the goat on the east side of the holy of, of the mercy seat and then seven uh, sprinkles and then walk out. Then when he got outside, he would take the blood of both and go and uh, would spread the blood on top of the horns of the burnt, the altar of burnt offering, purifying it. Once that was complete, he would take the second goat that was alive and he would put his hands upon it, press into them and and hopefully bells are going off because we've talked about this in the pre for chapters 1 to 7. But he would lean into that goat and he would confess the sins of the people. And the language is there in such a way that, that it meant that he was transferring the totality. The symbolism is transferring the totality of the people's sins onto that goat. And then that goat would be taken and given to someone who had been assigned. And they would take that goat outside the camp, east, out into the wilderness... And one would either turn it loose in such a way that it could not get back or would shove it off the side of a cliff. And then he would return. And once the scapegoat had left the camp, the priest would take off the linen clothes, take a bath, put on his ornate clothes. Then he would sacrifice the ram for a burnt offering. And he would sacrifice uh, sacrifice both rams as a part of... Uh, both rams on the sacrifice of burnt offering and then he would take the fat left over from the sin offering and place it upon uh, that burnt offering and the remainder would be taken out of the camp and burned and the gentleman or person who had to uh, burn 
the leftovers would then have to take off his clothes, wash himself and his clothes and put him back on. The person that had taken the goat away would have to come back, take off his clothes, wash himself, wash his clothes, and then they could both come back into the camp. It makes me tired just thinking about it. Why was this the right way of approach? First, it was right. It was the right way because the Lord commanded it to be so. He had determined that this was the way. But secondly, it was through these sacrifices that atonement was made. We've seen that in our study to this point. It was this process through which the people were propitiated, right? They were propitiated. That means that God's anger was appeased and his favor was restored. The people had their sins expiated. In other words, the guilt and shame had been removed. They had paid, the penalty had been paid for them and so that had all been removed. And then, of course, thirdly, they were purified. And not only were they purified, the tabernacle itself was purified. Remember, sin has this devastating effect. And whether active or passive or intentional or unintentional or known or unknown, sin is pervasive, it's deadly, it stains, pollutes, and contaminates everything that it comes into contact with. And it was through these sacrifices on this day, once a year, That everything and everyone, people in tabernacle, were purified, washed, decontaminated, cleansed, and able to dwell with the Lord. Now, there are a few thoughts I want to draw your attention to before we move to the last point. First, this symbolism, as you read through this chapter, the symbolism is remarkable and we can't miss it. Remember, from Genesis forward, everything has been moving from Eden east And the cherubim have blocked the gate, not allowing anyone to return. Well, we have to remember that the tabernacle faced east. And the priest, when he would come, would be traveling west and would go through the veils with the cherubim on them. Where was he going? Back. Like I said, the tabernacle pointing to Eden, going back to Eden where God had dwelt with his people. And then he would turn and then begin to purify and sanctify as he moved back to the east. We can't miss that. That's not coincidence. Second, with the blood on the mercy seat, we can't miss to see the picture of the Lord above the mercy seat where he sits doing what? Looking through the blood. To the covenant that was within the ark. God pointing us to God's faithfulness and his mercy as a covenant making, covenant keeping God. Third, the the people were to treat the day as a Sabbath. It was a day of rest and and they were to afflict themselves. It sounds rather abrupt, but it is. It's significant. Affliction. They were to fast, but also not only fast, but there was there was an idea of repentance and mourning their sin. I think it's safe to say that there was this expectation that the hearts of the people would match what's going on. Repenting of their sin, fasting for their sin, reflecting upon God's desire to dwell with him and what he had done to make that possible. 
Which leads us to the fourth point. More than likely, many, 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 as they reflected, would have realized that something wasn't right. Because this had to be done every year. Every year. Why would it have to be done every year? If, if we were experiencing in their minds, if we we're ex- being cleansed, if we we're being atoned for, why does this have to happen every year? And they would have realized this is actually pointing to something greater. There is something. There is someone to come that will end this yearly perpetual atoning on this particular day. Which, of course, brings us to the last point. That perfect and final way of approach is the Lord Jesus. There was a wrong way. There's a right way. There's a perfect and final way. It's Jesus. And we notice it all through the first seven, seven chapters. We, we noticed it from 8 through 15 as well. But the Lord Jesus is the one who fulfills not only those sacrifices, but also the day of atonement. Listen to Hebrews that we've read partial, uh, partially from Hebrews 9. Listen to these passages from Hebrews 9 and 10. Hebrews being that commentary, that New Testament commentary on Leviticus. The author writes, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for men to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Praise the Lord. Jesus is the great high priest. He's the great high priest. He is, he is a priest who is greater than Aaron because his priesthood is greater than Aaron's priesthood. Jesus didn't have to... Well, the, the priest humbled himself, humbled 
himself by changing out of the ornate into the, the linen. Right? Jesus humbled himself by taking on flesh. Humbled himself, left the right hand of the Father, became a servant, took on flesh, dwelt among us, was obedient to the point of death on the cross. He was the greater priest. But he was not only the full and final priest, he was the full and final sacrifice. He laid down himself. It was through his debt that our debt was paid. It was through his blood that we have been washed as white as snow. It was the Lord Jesus who was taken outside of the camp and crucified on a cross. As we read earlier in our assurance of pardon, he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin that we might be the righteousness of God. And as he went outside the camp, as Psalm 103 says, our sin has been separated us from us as far as the east is from the west. Right. That language becomes clear. Listen to this. He says in Psalm 103, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassions, compassion to those who fear him. For those who look to Christ, he is a father. For those who look away into something else, he is a judge. But he's provided a way. It's because of his perfect work on our behalf that God's favor is upon us. We have fellowship with him. Not only has he entered into the holy, holy of holies, but he is the true tabernacle. And we can approach him. We can approach him. In the words of Peter and Paul, we who are far off have been brought near. We are now a kingdom of priests. We are actually temples in whom the spirit dwells. All because of Jesus. So the question we all we always ask, how do we respond to that? What do, what do we do in light of that? How do we now go and live? And, I, and four things, and these aren't original with me. Again, these come straight out of Hebrews 10. Because at the end of that wonderful passage, we, we are given application. And we'll see this as we go through Hebrews next year. But four things. First, draw near. How do we respond? We draw near. We are to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We are to commune with the Lord. We are to fellowship with Him. We are to spend time with Him. We are to walk with Him. We are to talk with Him. We've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. We are to have fellowship with Him. We've been forgiven. We can dwell with Him so that He can dwell with us. We have nothing. We have absolutely nothing to fear because we have a mediator. We have nothing to be anxious about in His presence because we have a mediator. Our salvation is in the Lord Jesus Christ and we can rest in Him. Resting in the Lord Jesus. Secondly, we can hold fast. The writer of Hebrews says, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who is promised is faithful. We're called to persevere in our faith. And we know we're going to persevere in our faith because we are being preserved by the faithful one. 
And so we're called to do so. Our, our confidence and the assurance of our salvation is not measured by our faithfulness or our unfaithfulness, our sincerity of heart or insincerity of heart. Our assurance of our salvation comes from the fact that we are recipients of God's promise to save those who look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because his work was full and final on our behalf. He is faithful to keep his promises despite our unfaithfulness. Third, we are to stir up. We are to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We've said this over and over too, right? Even since we began over a year ago, we are to live holy lives, living in a manner worthy of our call. But we're to do that together. The Christian life is not a life of just me and my Bible. The the Christian life is not a life of just me and, and God out in nature. The Christian life is you and me together as the body of Christ, fellowshipping with one another, gathering with one another, living life among one another, pointing one another to Jesus. Spurring one another to to love God and to love our neighbor. Holding one another accountable. and Holding one another accountable to live the holy lives that we've been called to live. Because that's who we've been declared to be in Jesus. And then finally, meet together. We are to not neglect meeting together. Our life together begins here. You know, this is the number one place where discipleship takes place here. It's here in our worship service that discipleship takes place. It's here through the simple means of grace that the Lord ministers to us, conforms us into the image of Christ. It's it's here as we gather around word and around the table here before us. It's as we pray together and with one another and for one another. It's where we fellowship and he fills us with his spirit. He equips us for ministry. He meets our every need. As I prayed earlier, he heals our broken hearts. He lifts up the faint hearted. Encourages the weak. So the, the bottom, the bottom line is, and, and, and I know this is a hobby horse of mine and I'm sorry, but no, I'm not. Although we live in a day, in a time when everybody stresses that we need to just go and do something big for God because He's done something big for us. The reality is, I think that does a grave disservice to what we have been saved to and for. It's not about something big. It's about something very simple. You and I as the body of Christ living among one another. You and I in the day to day, in the very ordinary, spending our time together, spending our love, uh, our lives together, resting in Jesus, persevering in the faith, encouraging one another to love and good deeds. And worshiping together as God's people. And worshiping together as God's people. Oh, that we would see that for what it truly is.
It is an amazing gift that should never be taken for granted. It should never it should never be set aside or forgotten. It is an amazing gift that cannot be improved upon or surpassed by anything else. And it's what we were created for and it's what we've been saved for. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you now...